Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out about a volunteer rescue group that started small and has grown into more than 19,000 members across Ontario. And hear about one call over the holidays that typifies the kind of work they do. Bishop of Calgary, William McGrath, shares his memories of the late Pope Benedict, who died on Saturday at the age of 95 and looks back at the legacy of a pontiff who shocked the world when he retired in 2013, the first Pope to do so in 600 years. We get a preview of the biggest show in tech, the CES in Las Vegas, and find out what's got people buzzing this year. But first, we look at why there's been a big jump in fire-related fatalities in Ontario and elsewhere in the country over the past while. There were 133 deaths in 2022 in Ontario alone, the highest in decades. A lack of working smoke detectors can often lead to those deadly outcomes. We ask what needs to be done to reverse a tragic trend. Well, first up tonight, um, a tragic end to what had already been a very tragic year when it came to fire deaths in Ontario and elsewhere across this country. We're learning more about a fire that claimed four lives in Hamilton, including those of two young children and their mom. Ontario's Office of the Fire Marshal confirmed yesterday that the fire started in a sofa on the main floor of the townhouse where they were living and that smoke alarms at the home were not working. Here is Fire Marshal Ian Pegg or John Pegg, rather, speaking yesterday. As was, was initially reported last week, and I can now confirm, there were no working smoke alarms in the residence. The area of origin was determined to be an upholstered sofa within the living room on the ground floor. All of the occupants were on the second floor at the time of the fire, and due to the location of the fire and the configuration of the residence, the fire blocked their ability to descend through the stairwell. Every time there's a fatality in a home without a working smoke alarm, I wonder what if, what if there had been a working alarm? Peg says this fire is one of more than 133, or the deaths rather, are more than one, more than 133 fire-related deaths in that province alone in 2022, 133. That's a number not seen in decades. 2022 was an incredibly troubling year for fire fatalities. In 2022, we had 133 fire-related deaths, including tragic loss of young children, and families in several communities across our province. That is the highest total in more than 20 years in Ontario. Peg says the stats show that one in three fire deaths occur during the months of November, December, and January, so we're still in a very high-risk time. And a very high percentage of the fire fatalities happen in homes without working smoke alarms, no less. Those numbers come just six months after BC's fire commissioner reported a concerning rise in the number of fire-related deaths in that province in 2021, up to 59 from just 27 in 2019, a 119% increase. The numbers are down a little bit in 2022, but still higher than they were in 2019. So what is going on after so many years and so much emphasis on fire safety, including making sure that your fire or your smoke detectors are working? Uh, Why are we seeing this sudden rise in fire-related fatalities? Joining me now is Deputy Fire Chief Rob Grimwood of the Mississauga Fire and Emergency Services, and he is president as well of the Ontario Association of Fire Chiefs. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to speak with you, Ben. Uh, you know, the news that we got yesterday uh, confirming that there no were, were no working fire alarms in that tragic fire in Hamilton, I guess just a, a tragic end to what has been a really a tragic year uh, in Ontario for fire deaths. What, what do you think is causing it? Yeah, it, it really has been a, a staggering year. It started off with several multi-fatal fires in Ontario and then proceeded at a clip that we haven't seen in decades. And then unfortunately, as you indicated, finished on a on a tragic note as well. Uh, the fire deaths in Ontario have been increasing for the last three years. In terms of reasons, there are, I mean, a few of the potential uh, causes of the increase uh, would surround the COVID pandemic and the fact that people are home more, working from home, more items plugged in, cooking more meals. But at the end of the day, the, the fact of the matter remains that the, the single most cited reason for the increase in fatalities is the fact that people are still not getting the message about the importance of having working smoke alarms and a plan to escape their house should a fire occur. 
It seems remarkable because, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 50s. It feels like we've been talking about smoke alarms my entire life. Uh, where do you think the, uh, has there been, have people stopped listening to that message, do you think? You know, I, I wish I knew the answer. I'm in my 27th year in the fire service, and we've been talking about the importance of working smoke alarms since the day I joined. We, and I, I say the global we, the fire service, have tried everything. We've taken, at times, a heavy-handed approach, zero tolerance, and laid charges and issued fines. We've taken the total opposite approach, where we've tried to be cooperative and give away free smoke alarms. We have tried public education as innocent as cartoon messaging and as serious as uh, video and audio clips that are you know, potentially traumatizing and everything in between. I'm not sure whether people have tuned out our messaging or we just simply need to try and think outside of the box and figure out how to drive the message home. But uh, 133 deaths is 133 too many. But the fact these numbers are going up, it breaks my heart. Yeah, and I, I guess we are seeing some patterns as well, where oftentimes these are places without smoke detectors, um, and, and also a, a really alarming reminder of just how quickly fire spreads, even today, now that things are more fireproof, we're, we're more aware of it, but fire still gives you very little time to escape. You know, and that might be the one thing, is that it, people... In my view, I don't think people think that this is going to happen to them, which is why they're not checking their smoke alarms and planning their escape. But those who aren't oblivious to this think that they have minutes to escape fire, and they are dead wrong. You have seconds. Today's fires, even though we have better fire codes and earlier detection conceivably with smoke, working smoke alarms, Today's fires burn hotter and faster than ever before, and you have literally seconds from the time your smoke alarm awakes you until the time that you can escape your house. And I, I just think that people are, are not being honest with themselves about how prepared they need to be. And you see this, for, I mean, your members, you see this firsthand, right? I mean, you, Mississauga is a big place, one of the biggest cities in the country. You must be seeing this day in, day out when you, when you attend calls as well. We do. We do. Unfortunately, uh, our numbers, when we, when we um, find uh, the cause and origin after a fire or as part of our public education programs, our numbers are consistent where people are not getting the message. They don't have working smoke alarms in their homes. In, you know, in a good sense, uh, a lot of times we capture that at a call that isn't a fire. Maybe we're there for a carbon monoxide alarm or another emergency, and we're able to identify that the smoke alarm's not working. But tragically, if people find this out when they have a fire, it's just simply going to be too late. We're seeing this, I think, right across the country. I know it's hard. I mean, not every jurisdiction releases their numbers at the same time the way Ontario has. We had some numbers from uh, BC back in June. They've started a dashboard system. But it feels like this is happening everywhere. Um, and, and that's a surprise considering how much public education has been around fire safety over the many years. Yeah, that's true. It is definitely, it's not an issue that's unique to Ontario. And then even within Ontario, it's not an issue that is unique to any demographic. This is not a specifically a big city problem or a small town problem. It's not a problem in southern Ontario, but not the north. It is right across the province. We are noticing the same trends. Now, on uh, in one sense, though, uh, we are able, because of better data collection and analytics today, we are able to take those trends that occur across Canada and have better data with which to make informed decisions. But it is, it's, uh, I, I would have never guessed 27 years ago when I started that we would be seeing these types of numbers. And it's dangerous for your members too, right? Because fires that burn out of control, if there's no smoke detectors, presumably those fires um, burn faster, burn or, or you know are able to grow faster. And that's a danger to your members as well. They are. And we, we take a different approach when we arrive at a structure fire and are met on the front lawn by a family that tells us, that they've all escaped because of a working smoke alarm versus arriving at a fire 
where we believe people are inside. We accept a higher level of risk where we believe people to be trapped. So yeah, it's not just a public safety issue. It absolutely becomes a firefighter safety issue as well. Deputy Fire Chief Rob Grimwood of the Mississauga Fire and Emergency Services is with us this half hour, president of the Ontario Association of Fire Chiefs. We're talking about a really sobering number released yesterday by the Ontario Fire Marshal. 133 fire-related deaths in Ontario in 2022, a number not seen in decades there. Uh, We've seen increases in other parts of the country as well, and it really poses the question, what's happening? Uh, A lot of times there's a lack of working fire uh, smoke detectors in homes still to this day. Um, it's still hard to imagine that that goes on, uh, Deputy Chief Grimwood. But what do you think needs to be done? What do we need to do in 2023? You mentioned that this has happened now three years in a row. Uh, the pandemic is part of it with people staying home. But in 2023, to try to bring that number back down, what do you think needs to be done? In my view, one of the first things that we need to do is bring all the different stakeholders together, fire chief associations, provincial fire marshals, firefighter associations, fire department, fire prevention associations, all the different stakeholders come together and start brainstorming the things we haven't done. We know that everything we tried so far isn't working. We need to think outside of the box and start brainstorming different ideas uh, and, and possibly different methods that we haven't tried yet. The second thing I think we need to do is focus on public education that's more diverse. Canada is much more diverse in 2023 than it was back in the early 1990s when a lot of this public education material was put together. I think we need to uh, take a different approach in terms of trying to get messaging to people where English isn't their first language or different age groups and different demographics. And I think the third thing that needs to happen is I think that individual fire departments really need to increase their focus on public fire safety education, inspections, code enforcement, and fire prevention. At the end of the day, as as much as operations firefighters make the best attempts possible to save lives when we arrive at a structure fire, the The frank reality is if a working smoke alarm hasn't alerted the occupants of the house and they're not out of the house when we get there, odds are we're not going to be able to save them. And I think fire departments need to refocus and put more emphasis on fire prevention than ever before. Of course, it's been difficult. I mean, the fire departments, like everyone else, is having trouble with with attrition, right? Um, I imagine. And there's not a lot of bodies to go around to do all this important work. Uh, How much when you you mentioned it earlier, I mean, you're right. In the past 27 years, I guess, since you started, our approach to fire safety probably hasn't changed a lot, whereas the demographics of our country certainly has. That's exactly. We need to evolve as a fire service and start thinking of the things that we haven't done instead of trying to repeat the things that we have. And of course, where we live has changed, too. If you look at a city like Mississauga, I imagine a lot more people living in apartments now. It, it creates a different kind of dynamic when it comes to fighting fires and surviving fires. Very much. The the risks are different in a high-rise structure than a single-family dwelling, than a multi-residential. There's different risks for student housing, and, and I think we need to drill down to each different demographic and each risk and develop a more comprehensive strategy to prevent fires. When you look at uh, at 2023, you talked about trying to think outside the box. And, and it's, it's interesting because, again, smoke alarms seem to be the most obvious. Uh, I mean, the, the difference a smoke alarm makes or a smoke detector is huge, right? I mean, that would really be the key if you could get smoke detectors, functioning smoke detectors in every unit. Uh, you're improving people's chances of survival. Um, but as I was mentioning earlier, it feels like people have either aren't hearing that message or are ignoring it. What would be an area, do you think, is it social media? I mean, I guess people aren't paying as close attention to one form of messaging anymore, and it's harder to get your message out. Well, and I think the key is to not concentrate too much on any one form and make sure that you have a very broad strategy for communicating with people. I mean, social media is certainly a piece of that. It's a component, but we need to figure out how to communicate with all people of all demographics. Smoke alarm messaging is certainly, that is number one. If I have 10 seconds to talk to somebody about uh, fire safety, it's about working smoke alarms. 
but there's cooking safety, there's electrical safety, there's promoting uh, the value of residential sprinkler systems. There's all kinds of different discussion points. And I think we just need to be really strategic about all of that messaging. And I suppose the only good that can come of what has been a really tragic year in Ontario is that people are paying attention again to what could be the problem here. Well, and, and that's 133 deaths. It breaks my heart and it's tragic and it's awful. But if it gives us the opportunity to have this discussion and it brings attention to this issue and it gets people listening and checking their working smoke alarms, then that will be the legacy of those 133 people. Rob Gribman, thank you so much for your time and your perspective on this tonight. Thanks, Ben. That's quite the segue because, of course, bad weather led to a lot of travel chaos over the holidays. We've talked a lot about it uh, just about everywhere. Uh, We've also heard a lot of bad stories about uh, people being stuck in the weather, specifically some of the tragedies coming out of Buffalo where they had record snowfall. uh, Deadly, a deadly storm there. At least 30 people, I believe, were killed in that one. but there were some remarkable rescue stories as well, some remarkable stories of, of people helping each other out, of neighbors coming to the help of neighbors, um, and some slightly different kind of ones, including this next one. An Ontario senior carrying for, caring for several young kids was stranded in his home in Huntsville, that's about 200 kilometers north of Toronto, for days, trapped by snow and fallen trees, blocking his one-kilometer-long driveway. Um, and it was a real issue. In comes a group of volunteers that started off really small in a town called Aurelia in Ontario. is growing now to 19,000 members. They communicate on Facebook, uh, and they're called Trillium Off-Road Recovery. Those volunteers came to the rescue of this gentleman and the children that were in that home. It's part of what they do, um, and they provide a really necessary service in Ontario to find out more about how they came to be, how they grew, and this rescue in particular that seems to typify the kind of work they do. Founder and volunteer Evan Taylor joins me now. Thank you for your time tonight. Yeah, no problem. Happy to chat with you. This is quite the story. I mean, I gather you were very busy over the holidays. There was a lot of bad weather in and around where you are. Uh, but tell me a bit about this one. This was quite uh, quite the tale about a, an elderly gentleman and several kids sort of trapped in their home around Huntsville. Yeah, it was, it was certainly a, a something that we don't deal with every day. Um, our group uh, received a request on, I believe it was December 30th. Uh, we received kind of a unique request. Uh, there was an elderly gentleman in Huntsville uh, who was caring for some young children. And uh, just due to the, the nature of his age and his ability, he wasn't able to clear his driveway of this substantial amount of snow. He had about a one kilometer driveway and he had a, a, approximately 40 fallen trees wow. over the period of that driveway. Um, and he became uh, trapped in his own home. So our group received a request, uh, you know, asking that we get involved, and uh, that's what we did. What happened after that? Because I gather what this is is really a bunch of volunteers on Facebook, and you essentially respond, right? People who are in the area would then be able to respond and say, "I'll go." Absolutely. So our our group is uh, it was founded out of Aurelia, and what we do is we help people when they get broken down, stuck, or stranded in an off-road vehicle capacity. So we're not an on-road tow company. Uh, We're just a group of volunteers in the community willing to help one another out when they get uh, into a bad situation. And then uh, in certain instances, we've been used in other uh, you know civilian capacities uh, to assist the police with search and rescue, you know, when requested, um, as well as other. Uh, agencies uh, when they need assistance. So what happened here? This was a long driveway. I imagine the gentleman had family nearby, but that no one was really able to uh, move all this debris and all this snow out of that driveway. I guess the authorities were busy as well. Uh, how did it yeah. unfold as far as as far as Trillium Off-Road Recovery and, the, and your volunteers are concerned? So when Trillium received the, uh, the request, we uh, immediately knew that the gentleman was in a great deal of need. Our primary concern was safety and being able to get emergency vehicles into the home should they require them. My understanding is the individual had been without power for approximately four days. It was going wow. on his there was no power. The family was attempting to get a generator into him for him and the family, but were unable to. So our, our first concern, of course, was his safety. So we uh, we put out a post uh, on our Facebook group just requesting any of our volunteers that would be able to assist would come and do so in the Huntsville area. 
And uh, we, we immediately had hundreds of people. We have about uh, 19,000 members on our Facebook group, and we immediately had uh, hundreds of people responding to the request. It was quite overwhelming just to try to deal with the responses, just the people coming forward to, to do, the, do the right thing and help their fellow human being. It was obviously a, a pretty difficult one, given the amount of snow that had fallen. Everyone was kind of stuck in the same way. How did you manage to to reach him finally? And I gather the family helped out as well, that it was kind of a really a collective effort. It was a collective effort. You know what? We have some great volunteers. And with the help of the family and our volunteers, we were able to get in there and get him. Uh, you know, just a lot of, uh, we like to say, people helping people. That's what we're all about. And, and that's really what happened. Um, you got, I mean, I, I gather all's well that ends well, right? Everything was okay once you got in there and I, I gather a generator was delivered. The kids are okay. That's correct. Everybody's doing good. They were able to get a generator in and uh, luckily power was restored shortly after we reached them. So obviously those hydro crews working like crazy to get the, the hydro infrastructure back up and uh, they were able to do that. How bad was the weather? I mean, it, it must've been, that was a lot of snow that fell in that area. Yeah, you know what, that's the most amount of snow since I've lived here, uh, you know, that I've seen uh, Huntsville got hit really, really hard. And with the blowing and drifting of snow, it just made areas impassable for emergency vehicles, uh, plow trucks and the police in our area were asking people not to drive. Uh, I know uh, one of our main highways in the area had been completely shut down, which is almost unheard of. Yeah, and because I mean, this is an area that's used to snow, right? It's not like this isn't your first winter, right? This is uh... no, not by any stretch. You, and you were saying that you've been getting a lot of calls uh, over the past little while. It's been really busy for your group uh, over the holiday period. It's been extremely busy for us. Uh, we uh, we help people in all kinds of situations, whether it be uh, in their off-road vehicle, their vessel, uh, other equipment that they have off-road. Basically, as long as it's not an area that a tow truck would normally do the work in, we'll assist. How did it get started? Because you're up to 19,000 people on a Facebook page. That's a lot of people. Um, you know, search and rescue groups are well known. But in your case, this was really a volunteer built. What was the impetus to go ahead and, and found this group? And you must be impressed with how much it's grown. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm blown away with the number of uh, volunteers that we have. When I founded the group in Aurelia, I thought you know, if we had, you know, four or five people helping in our immediate area, we'd be doing pretty good. And uh, as you've seen, our group has just continued to grow into the thousands and uh, to the point where we, uh, you know, we allow people to post anywhere in the province of Ontario in, in order to try to uh, assist them in uh, any way that we can. So what are some of the examples? I mean, I, I gather, how are some of the ways you reach people that can't be reached? Uh, you must have some pretty pretty incredible rescue stories out there. Oh, we do. We have plenty of stories. Uh, we've got some pretty incredible equipment in, uh, in our group. We have everything from, uh, I'm not familiar, if you're familiar with the Sherp-type vehicles. They're big, four-wheeled, all-terrain vehicles, uh, almost like a miniature tank. Uh, we have members that have uh, specialized equipment like that. Uh, we have lots of members of different uh, 4 by 4 capabilities. And uh, a lot of it is just uh, good old-fashioned uh, elbow grease, you know, with uh, work with chainsaws to get people out of uh, areas where they might be trapped or, uh, or in need. And uh, we're just, that's what we're willing to do. How does it work? I mean, how do you get alerted generally? I know, obviously, the authorities in, in a lot of these areas, they, these are big pieces of territory. They're often, you know, when it comes to emergency services, they're often volunteer as well. There's not a whole lot of, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of manpower there. Uh, how do you normally, how does a call normally unfold for you guys? So a call normally unfolds by uh, someone posting to our Facebook group or one of our social media networks. One of the issues that we had found was that having an all-volunteer service, it would be difficult to have someone act as a centralized dispatcher. So we decided to go with the social media side of things and uh, be able to have everyone's requests instantly visible to all of our followers. When you look at the, um, I mean, clearly the people get themselves into positions where they need your help, you'd probably want them to avoid that in the first place, right? Is there any advice you have for people out there just given what you've seen over the past while? You know, over the past while, some of the biggest things that we see is is people are risking their lives out on the ice. We get a lot of, uh, you know, good winter ice here in Ontario. Uh, the lakes freeze up nicely, but we also have some areas that aren't so good. And we have a lot of people that are, uh, you know, willing to put their themselves in, in risk uh, to go out and uh, be out in the ice. And, and we don't want to see that. And, uh, and we don't want to see our, our members be asked to go out in situations where they're going to get themselves into any danger either. So that's really what we want to impart on our membership is to just to be safe.
How did you start it? What was the what was the impetus to begin this in the first place? Was there a specific incident, or did you recognize the need, or what was it about? Uh, what what made you decide that this was something that was necessary? And clearly, it was because you have um, so many volunteers and so many calls. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was just seeing the the need in the network. Uh, we've always I've always believed that uh, Ontario is full of good people. We've got uh, lots of people willing to help one another out. But I really saw that we lacked any kind of communication network in order to get people help when they needed it. So uh, uh, I thought that that was something that we could create. And it started really small, right? Just with Facebook. I mean, you do rely on social media for this. It's it's incredible because you couldn't have done it 25, 20 years ago, right? No, absolutely not. Where do you go from here? I mean, you've been busy. Um, I guess sometimes we often think that this is the work of of authorities, right? The authorities should be doing this stuff. But we know from uh, that in a country the size of Canada, with the kind of weather we have, it's just not always possible, right? Sometimes there needs to be that helping hand that exists uh, that isn't um, official, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't want to we want to be clear that we're not in the place to take the the responsibility of the first responders or the tow trucks. Uh, Obviously, that's that's an important job that they have to do. Uh, But there's also a lot of need in the in the community uh, in the off road community that we found that, uh, you know, people were getting into areas, uh, especially areas where there no were no uh, uh, tow trucks or recovery services uh, available uh, or they were unable to reach the people. uh, We found that we were able to help in those situations. Uh, Evan, where do you go from here? I mean, you have 19,000 volunteers now. It, it, it's clearly growing. The need is there. What would you like to see done with uh, with Trillium Off-Road Recovery? You know, I'd like to see it continue to grow. Um, I'd like to get to a point where we can provide a valuable service to the people of Ontario. Uh, and I'd like to see you see that to, to continue to expand. Uh, the majority of our membership is still in the southern half of the province. So I, I'd really like to see uh, more growth in the northern half of the province just so we can really serve people better. And, and and I guess you, you have looked at sort of making it bigger because you changed the name from Aurelia, which was really geographically specific, to Trillium, which suggests a larger, a larger all Ontario approach. Absolutely. That's uh, that was one of the problems that we had is that uh, when we started with the name Aurelia, we only thought it would be a small localized group. And uh, the more and more that we were able to help and the more and more people we had geographically, we had to select a new name that was uh, more geographically appropriate to where we were able to assist people. You talk to people in other provinces. Is this something that exists in a lot of places? Is there a whole network of volunteer, uh, sort of volunteer rescue folks out there um, across the country that do this kind of work that we're just not always aware of? You know, I think there is. I think there's a lot of good people out there that have been doing this. Um, I do know of several other small groups uh, in other provinces you know, in the, in the numbers of uh, several hundred to several thousands, you know, I, I don't think they get the credit they deserve. They're out there, uh, you know, helping people that when they need help the most and when they're in some pretty bad situations. So just a lot of good people doing good stuff. And Evan, if people want to find you or just have a look at your page, where should they go? I would send them to our Facebook page. Uh, that's where we have the majority of our Facebook uh or the majority of our recovery requests go on. And uh, all they have to do is just search Trillium Off-Road Recovery. And uh, we have a Facebook page as well as a Facebook group that they can join in. Uh, uh, even if they're not from the area, they can you know check it out and just see what we're doing or uh, even do something similar themselves. Well, fascinating stuff, Evan Taylor. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thank you very much, Ben. Back Many years ago, 2013, I was on holiday. I was based in London at the time. I was on holiday in Paris with my wife, and I got an email from work saying, you need to get to Rome now. You need to get to Rome now. Um, The Pope has quit. And what do you mean the Pope has quit? What do you mean the Pope has resigned? Popes don't resign. Um, I'd never heard of a Pope resigning. The reason for that is because no Pope had resigned in 600 years. But that's precisely what Pope Benedict did in 2013. He simply announced um, that he was going to step down. Um, And, you know, it was a remarkable moment in history. And, of course, I had to get to Rome quickly. I did. We got there. It was rainy. It was quiet. I mean, I'd been there for other events over the years uh, at at, uh, St. Peter's Square. It was usually a really active place uh, because we were there for something that was going on, something big. This night, it was just quiet. So, so quiet. And I think everyone was just a bit shocked. 
And then, of course, it emerged uh, over time that he felt like it was time to go. He had been become pontiff at 78, so he was already older and felt like it was uh, taking a lot out of him. And uh, he wanted to simply retire to a life of uh, contemplation, so to speak, and make way for somebody else who became Pope Francis. Of course, Pope Francis was uh, elected as his successor. Uh, but it, of course, I had to find out a lot about Pope Benedict at the time to cover the whole, all the events that led up um, both from his resignation to the nomination to the election of a new Pope. Um, and so today I've been watching, you know, he passed away at the age of 95 on Saturday. He'd been in ill health for a while. Uh, Pope Francis today praised uh, Benedict's acute and gentle thought, he called it, as he presided over a packed general audience in Vatican City. Here's what one mourner there had to say. Something uh, I think you cannot uh, express with words. Uh, you are speechless, like uh, the things that you are seeing. Now, Francis is due, and this is going to be a historic site in of itself, Francis is due to preside over the funeral of his predecessor uh, coming up in just a few hours in uh, Rome time. Um, Thursday morning, again, Benedict's coffin will be carried out in front of St. Peter's for a public mass. Tens of thousands of people are expected to be there. Of course, Benedict succeeded John Paul II, uh, which was always going to be difficult. You know, John Paul uh, II was a very charismatic and popular pontiff. Um, Benedict was a very different kind of man. He was a scholar, a longtime scholar. Um, and in his almost eight years as Pope, it was widely seen as a difficult time for the church, not just the Pope, but the church itself, one marked by turmoil over issues, including sexual abuse scandals. But others point out that Benedict started in motion many of the things that we've witnessed under Francis, including steps towards reconciliation and an apology for the church's role in residential schools here in a far firmer line on uh, the sexual abuse scandals of the past within the church. Now, Bishop of Calgary, William McGratton, became a bishop while Benedict was Pope. He's met the late pontiff, um, uh, including teachings with him back in Rome in the 90s. And he joins me now, Bishop McGratton. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thank you, Ben, for the invitation. I know that uh, Pope Benedict was um, had a special role in your life in the church as well. You became a bishop under Pope Benedict. So this was a personal loss in some ways to you as well, I imagine. In some ways, uh, yes, knowing that he was the one who was uh, the successor of Peter, uh, the pope who uh, called me to the episcopacy. But I also knew him as the prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and had a number of opportunities to be present at sessions that were dealing with seminary formation. And I found him in his words, in the advice, the guidance to questions that were asked of him to be truly a pastor. He was very gentle and very sort of direct and succinct in responses. And so, you know, when I have memories of him, I probably have it as, as a teacher and, and as a pastor. Yeah, I, I guess this was back in Rome in the 90s, right? That's, um, if, I, if I remember yes. correctly. Uh, his, his reputation as a scholar, as an intellect, is certainly without match uh, in recent times. I mean, that was, I guess, his legacy in many ways is that he was an incredible scholar of the church. You're right. And in some ways, his scholarship was also, I think, a sign of his own humility. When I've reflected on some of his writings, his book, uh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, he always presents it in such a way that he is not trying to force the truth, but oftentimes he presents it, gives reasons, gives objections, and gives a balanced approach. And so I've always sort of seen that as someone who is uh, open to how the truth can be both received and, and understood. His depth of languages, his command of scripture, of the patristics, uh, the church's living tradition of teaching, how he could borrow from so many sources and bring his points and what he wanted to convey to people in such a direct and simple way always astounded me. His reputation, I remember covering when covering his resignation, his reputation uh, was also one, though, of quite a formidable figure of uh, God's Rottweiler, I think, uh, was the one of the terms that may have been used by people who didn't appreciate him as much. But he he cut quite an imposing figure. At least that was the impression outside of the church. It was. And I think it maybe was because of his entering into discussions with maybe theologians who were pushing the boundaries, maybe sometimes, of the church's uh, teaching, some of the areas of dogma. You know, we, we know that he was always a man that saw 
the principle of continuity as being very important in understanding both scripture and the tradition. And so I guess, you know, when someone is operating or beginning their type of explanation or teaching from that perspective, it might seem to some that he's trying to conserve or to maintain what was there in the past. And so I think that impression, you know, has been recognized by many who have been involved in discussions and debates with him. Becoming the, pre- the successor to Pope John Paul II was going to be difficult for whomever became Pope afterwards. It was certainly a challenge for, it seemed from the outside at least, certainly a challenge for Benedict, who was very much, as you pointed out, a teacher and and, and a gentle kind of he didn't he didn't lead from the heart it didn't seem he was really was a man of sort of of learning yes and i think that's why between the previous pope saint john paul ii and now the current pope pope francis uh, many have sort of made that comparison and sometimes i think we have to see that the church both has the the gifts and the presence of both intellect and and the mind that I think Pope Emeritus Benedict will be known for, but he he really did have a heart. When you think about some of the issues that he he challenged and and began to work towards reform with, with regard to clergy sexual abuse of minors and meeting with victims, you know, even for Canadians, you know, he was open to first meeting that delegation in 2009 to understand the pain and the suffering of those who attended residential schools. So. I know in his gestures, he was opening himself up to those particular difficult situations. Maybe his response or how he acted upon that might be seen more from an intellectual perspective. But I really do think, you know, he he was a man who had a gentle heart. Maybe it was expressed in in ways that people might not uh, identify with St. John Paul II or or with Pope Francis. It always struck me that he he came in at a very difficult time for, you know, the, a lot of things were moving very quickly uh, for the church. We had the advent of social media. We had lots of, you know, news spread fast by the time that Benedict uh, became Pope and that he was sort of a traditionalist caught sometimes in in events that were moving very quickly by any standards, uh, let alone that of the Catholic Church. Well, I think you're describing what's happening in our modern society with the influence of of media and how things are reported in almost uh, real time and the expectation to respond. And maybe that often uh, caused him maybe to sort of step back and realize that, uh, you know, his preference, his way of responding was much more from a, a traditional or an academic way. And in some ways, he, he continued to uh, make visits, like he went to over 24 countries. And yes, uh, I think those were important. They were public events. They were media. I think he didn't shy away from it, but he maybe was not as comfortable as we know Pope Francis is. Um I was uh, explaining a little bit earlier that I covered uh, his resignation, just how much shock there was everywhere, but certainly um, at the Vatican at the time. Were you caught off guard when he announced his resignation? He had telegraphed it a little bit. He wasn't young when he became Pope, 78, um, but it certainly caught, you know, it hadn't happened in 600 years. It certainly caught a lot of people off guard. I think you're correct, Ben. It did. In some ways, too, it was, I think, though, also a sign of his recognizing his own limitations and people maybe not knowing that personally. And then after a number of days or weeks, people began, I think, then to appropriate or to sort of realize that maybe this decision, yes, being made for personal reasons, but also for greater reasons that his own role as the Pope maybe was going to be potentially limited because of his age and his health. So others have said that it's been a a sign of humility, you know, to recognize when one is maybe being called by God to step down. But it it did really shock the church and the world. Some commentators have used the word, it it sort of opened the air of demystifying the papacy. It, It sort of brought a certain relevance, a certain recognition that maybe this truly was you know, something that uh, was forward thinking for the time. And maybe that's also a way of remembering this resignation that was a shock, but maybe it had a deeper meaning and a purpose. 
there was certainly at the time concern that having two living popes would create conflict. And I think we saw a little bit of it. There was the odd um, disagreement between what Pope Francis was saying and uh, Pope Benedict very much stayed in the shadows for most of the last um, seven, eight years. But but there were some conflicts there. But overall, it, it looks like the arrangement succeeded generally. I think, yes, there was a deep respect and admiration. And I think when that it is there between Pope Emeritus and the current Pope, even though there might have been disagreements, maybe about practice or theological perspective, there was a genuineness to respect each other and to support each other. And the very fact that he was in residence at the Vatican, uh, close to Pope Francis says a lot. The fact that he was in the monastery there of the Mary Mother of the Church, I think that speaks volumes that he was there in prayer, spiritually supporting the church and Pope Francis in his his ministry. When one thinks of the impact, of course, of Pope John Paul II, one thinks of the impact that Pope Francis uh, will likely have, given how public a papacy he's had, how popular a papacy he's having. Um, one gets the impression sometimes that Benedict may may vanish between those two titans. But you've said in the past that his writings, his his life's work, will remain in a way that perhaps uh, isn't um, what many other people see as sort of a popular pope, but he is an influential pope. Knowing the church's tradition and how we've relied on such um, individuals, yes, if this uh, is a legacy, I think it's an important one, uh, one of pointing to the truth and then standing back and allowing others to maybe appropriate that or understand it in terms of our Christian tradition and, and the revelation that we've received from Scripture. So he was very much guided by the Word of God. And I think that that also will stand as a testimony to him and his theological writings. And I think that also will be in further years. And as others begin to mine or, you know, research his works, they'll begin to see patterns of thought. And maybe the writings will also show a a gift of inspiration that maybe the Holy Spirit was working in and through his scholarship and his writing. So this remains to be seen. And as we know, our words live on. And hopefully those were inspired words. And and therefore, they'll have a, a an eternal kind of contribution to the church's tradition and its um, in its teaching. And and despite you know we we've obviously been reading all the um, you know all the words that have been written about Pope Benedict over the last few days. There was certainly some controversy about his record over sexual abuse, abuse claims and so on. But it always felt in some ways that he really did embody in many ways that that transition, that difficult transition the church was going through at the time. Um, and he did sort of, it, I, you get the impression he did face up to it, but it was never going to be fast enough uh, for those who were waiting for more concrete action from the church. But he did start the process that we're witnessing unfold now with Francis. I would agree. I might use the scriptural image of John the Baptist. Uh, He began to point the way uh, and how the church should deal with this. He did make that definitive decision, and I think it was a decision of reform. And I'd also point out, Ben, that maybe his resignation, uh, realizing maybe the reform of the Curia, that he himself did not have the, the stamina or maybe the physical ability to carry through with something like that, realizing that maybe that was an important step for the next pontiff as well. So maybe paving the way for Pope Francis and some of the initiatives that he has been asking the church to, uh, to consider and to undergo with he himself, the Pope. Well, Bishop McGratton, thank you so much for your time and your insight on this tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Ben. Well, it's Wednesday, and it is the New Year, so for the first time in 2023, we'll have our Journalism Corner, where we invite a journalist on who's doing interesting work uh, this week and other weeks as well to talk about what it is they're up to, and what better place to head now than to the what we used to call the Consumer Electronics Show, now simply known as CES, the Super Bowl of Tech, it's often called. That uh, begins imminently in Las Vegas. It's in person this year, again, really for the first time uh, since early 2020. It did take place back right before the pandemic, of course, back in 2020. Um, It's changed a lot over time. It's opened, you know, 
it's opened it's not just electronics in other words uh it's expanded beyond audio and video to include automotive digital health smartphones wearables you name it it's there uh there's a lot of new companies there i think 1000 of the 3000 companies that are there are there for the first time uh there's going to be virtual reality robotics tech items um lots of stuff so we figured let's get a preview who better than Micah Gerbo, who's host of the Get Connected, uh, host of Get Connected, rather, and the App Show. And he joins us now. Mike, thanks so much for your time tonight. What an exciting time uh, to be back at CES. It is pretty exciting. Yeah, they did have it last year as well. But, uh, you know, if you can remember, uh, I think, you know, most of the vendors pulled out at the last moment. So it was kind of a, a ghost town. So it's really exciting to be back and see, you know, thousands of people here again. What's the atmosphere like? I mean, it's you're right. Last year, Omicron hit, right? And all of a sudden, they were sort of trying to do something a bit hybrid, and they had to really kind of, the whole thing fell apart. But what's the buzz been like this year now that everyone is indeed back? Everyone's pretty excited. Uh, you know, the show doesn't officially start till tomorrow. Uh, but, you know, pre, uh, previous to that, it, there's always a couple of days of uh, preview events for the journalists uh, like us. So, uh, you know, I've been able to go to a few of these here. Everyone's really excited that uh, the show is back. There's a lot of great new companies and a lot of cool new tech, you know, and it's been it's been a while. It's been a few years before, you know, we've uh, been able to, to really get uh, back to business here. So I know it's always the billion-dollar question because there's so much there, right? There's so I, Even just reading through all the articles today trying to get ready to talk to you, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of stuff you could talk about. But what are some of the things that have really – what are some of the things that you'll be looking for uh, in terms of new stuff that, uh, that can be exciting and interesting? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of health tech, uh, that's been a huge growing part of the show over the past few years. And uh, this year, uh, there's some amazing uh, stuff. Uh, Withings, uh, they're a company that's uh, made a lot of uh, wearables uh, for tracking health, heart rate, steps, and things like that. They've got this new product called U-Scan, and this is kind of right. neat. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw The Island with Ewan McGregor. Uh, you I know, did, yeah. peeing into the to- He's peeing into the right. toilet, and the computer's telling him, you know, you've got to cut down on the salt, no more bacon for you. Well, they've got this little puck now that you put in your toilet, and, you know, as you're peeing, it's actually figuring out what uh, kind of nutrients and things uh, are uh, missing or you need more of, uh, you know, from your urine, essentially. They've got different cartridges. You can also get a, a menstrual cycle one as well that you can put in there that tracks uh, women's menstrual cycle to help them know when they're ovulating and things like that. Wow. Uh, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's getting, I mean, that, that's, um, that, yeah, I actually saw a video of that very thing. And it was, it was some, a lot of people have been paying attention to that one. Uh, I guess it makes sense for the health stuff, right? That's the frontier where a lot of this has been moving of late. And I guess it's just getting more and more sophisticated. It really is. There was another company called Barracoda. Uh, they have a whole series of products. They've got like a connected toothbrush. I mean, you know, we've seen those before, uh, but it's how they've kind of woven them into an ecosystem. Uh, they have a connected toothbrush, a connected thermometer. Uh, they also have this really cool bath mat now as well. So uh, as you can imagine, uh, it's a scale, so it can tell you how much you weigh. It also uh, can tell you uh, things like your body composition, your body fat, uh, but also things like your balance and also your posture. It can tell wow. you if your posture is bad or not and give you tips on exercises. But what ties it all in together is this kind of magic mirror uh, that essentially takes all that data and kind of displays it on the mirror to you in real time. So, you know, as you're brushing your teeth with that connected toothbrush, you get this image of your teeth uh, up on, uh, on on the screen, basically showing you where you've brushed and where you're missing, which is kind of really, really cool. And what's, what's really neat is to go through all the menus, Yeah, you know, you, you don't want to be touching your mirror, of course, right, because that's going to get all grimy. You just do it with gestures from your hand. You just kind of wave your hand back and forth to, to scroll through different things. So it's uh, some really cool tech, and it seems to work quite well. Yeah. I, wow. I, I don't know if I've ever wanted to know that much about what kind of condition my condition is in in the, in the household, but it is really – I mean, uh, I was I seeing another – yeah, something called the, the non-watch or the no-watch. There was another one that was out there today that sort of that can tell you how you're feeling and sort of predict if you're getting stressed an hour before you're getting stressed. I mean, it's really, it's getting very detailed. It, it really is. Uh, you know, another couple of cool products from L'Oreal, uh, they're showing off. They've got this magic brow uh, device. Uh, so essentially, it, it uh, kind of paints on uh, a better eyebrow for you. Uh, which, wow. uh, you know, lasts for a couple of days. I can see, uh, you know, people that are really into their brows would be just all over this. And another really cool device for people uh, with disabilities, it's called the haptic. And basically you put uh, a lipstick in it. It's like a gimbal, um, like, you know, you'd have a GoPro or something into, but 
Instead, it's lipstick. So, you know, if you've got Parkinson's, for example, uh, and, you know, a shaky hand, it, uh, it compensates for that. So you can actually apply your lipstick uh, nice, nice and smooth. So we're seeing a lot of assisted uh, technology like that. Uh, another company out of Winnipeg had, uh, I think they're called Will, uh, they have this uh, really cool autonomous uh, wheelchair that's great for hospitals and airports. So instead of having to find someone to, uh, you know, push the wheelchair to get you to your gate if you need that type of assistance, you can basically be put in this this chair and punch in the gate number, let's say 34, and it'll just automatically drive you there, dump you off, and then uh, go back to uh, where it came from to get the next person. I imagine that I, I've been looking around for Canadian. I mean, you'll be looking for Canadian content as well. There's always a lot of, quite a bit of Canadian content at CES. Yeah, you know, it, it's fun to run into these guys. Uh, you know, you just don't expect it. You see these really kind of cool innovations, and a lot of times they are uh, Canadian. Uh, something that really caught my eye as well, I'm kind of really into the robots, uh, you know, the robotic uh, vacuums. I've got a robotic lawnmower. Uh, there's a new robotic lawnmower, which uh, I think is really cool. Uh, it's called uh, the Vision, and basically you don't have to put down any border wire or anything to make sure your lawnmower doesn't run off. This one just completely works with high-def cameras on it and can tell where all the boundaries are in your yard. So if it uh, runs out of grass, it's not going to go tearing off into the neighbor's uh, side there or into the street. So uh, kind of looking forward to trying that out as well. So Mike, you just put your feet up and watch, watch the mower do its work. I, I got to tell you, I, I got to a Husqvarna automower a few years ago, changed my life. I could never go back to a regular lawnmower anymore. So I'm excited to see, you know, these advancements in, uh, you know, robot, uh, robotics and uh, robo mowers. Uh, another really cool thing uh, I saw as well, I haven't tried it yet. You know, we've seen a lot of these kind of e-scooters and e-bikes, uh, you know, with the assistive uh, uh, tech. Uh, someone came out with uh, these uh, e-rollerblades. <laughs> wow. I don't know if that's, wow. I don't know if that's that good or bad. Dangerous. I don't know if it's good that or bad. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, Going like 40K down the street. No, yeah. <laughs> I would not be long for this earth by putting those things on. But, uh, you know, just kind of cool how they're kind of building that in. Another Japanese firm, they have this really cool uh, e-motorcycle. Uh, you know, it tops off around 40 kilometers an hour, but it can go, you know, a range of 50K. Um, but it, it folds completely into this little suitcase. So you could use this as like a little commuter motorbike. And then when you get to the office, you don't have to park it. You just fold it into its suitcase and just bring it on up and put it underneath your desk. So the foldable bike sort of uh, on steroids, that's, that's, a, that's remarkable. Um, oh, it's cool. <laughs> it's super cool. I know this, you know, robotics, I was reading a lot today about how, you know, will, be the, will this be the year where they introduce robot? You've already mentioned it, that there, that there is that already there, that, you know, oftentimes the robotics are kind of flashy, but don't do much. It sounds like uh, a lot of the robotics this year are much more targeted towards practical needs. Yeah, you know, you're, you're right. You know, they've got these kind of fancy robots sometimes, but you just wonder, like, are these going to work? Like Samsung one year had this robotic arm in the kitchen that could, you know, help cook, like, how well is that going to work? You know, I can see that thing, you know, going terribly wrong. Uh, but some cool um, kind of, again, assistive technology sees exoskeletons for, for workers. Uh, this one company called German Bionics, uh, they make the, the Cray X, they call it. And it's kind of like this exoskeleton that warehouse workers can uh, put on. It, it, you know, it doesn't make you look like a robot or anything or like Sigourney Weaver from uh, Aliens. But um, it, it gives you 60 pounds of extra lift you know, for lifting up heavy objects. And it also has assisted uh, uh, walking as well. So, you know, kind of reduces the fatigue if you're kind of walking around the warehouse all day. So uh, there's actually quite a few of those types of uh, uh, exoskeleton type companies out there right now. Obviously, it's, uh, you know, a challenge for workers in some of these uh, uh, high stress, uh, you know, uh, jobs like warehouses or manufacturing or out on job sites. So uh, that's, uh, it's kind of a big industry. It's almost like a wearable forklift, right? That's, that's, uh, that's remarkable. Micah Gerber was with us this half hour from Las Vegas. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I just, uh, you know, the list goes on. And what's exciting is the show hasn't even started yet. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> this is just the previews. Yeah, exactly. We're talking technology this half hour. Micah Gerbo, the host of Get Connected and the App Show, is with us from Las Vegas at CES. The Super Bowl of Tech, as it's often called, it uh, officially gets underway tomorrow, but Mike's been able to take in some of the preview events that are opened up to the media and so on. We've been talking about some of the very cool stuff he's already seen. Uh, one thinks of the big, the big companies at this. Uh, I guess some are under some pressure. 
I would suppose. Um, what what uh, what are we expecting in terms of stuff like virtual reality, Meta, for instance? I guess I was reading a lot about Meta today, and sort of seeing that uh, this might be uh, uh, one where we may see whether or not this is going to work. Well, not work or not, but see what the momentum is like at this particular CES. Yeah, Meta, which is Facebook's uh, parent company, they've put in billions and billions of dollars. I think they spent ten billion, uh, you know, over the past year just trying to get that whole side. Uh, going with the virtual reality, uh, virtual reality goggles and the software. Uh, and you know what? There's actually more companies here down here than I thought that were actually displaying different types of tech. A lot of it has to do with just kind of enhancing the, uh, the virtual experience. You know, obviously, you know, you can put the goggles on and you can see things, but how do you feel things? So there's a lot of companies that actually have haptic technology, uh, you know, gloves you can wear or things you can wear around your body that actually can make you feel things as you're going through these different virtual uh, worlds. Even a company that you don't, you won't believe this, uh, like a smell-o-vision company, uh, you know, wow. you can actually have smells come into your virtual world uh, as well. I haven't tried it yet, wow. but I'm, I'm going to. Um, when one looks at it, I mean, we, we talked before Christmas about uh, AI, you know, chatbot, uh, the chat GPT came out. Is there going to be much in the where? I mean, I imagine AI will be part of this. That'll be one of the other things to look out for. Yeah, I haven't explored that yet. Uh, there's a whole section at the show uh, that's going to be opening tomorrow uh, called Eureka Park. And it's kind of like the innovator center where there's literally hundreds of these new uh, innovation companies that are showing these types of uh, uh, technology uh, off. Uh, you know, but back on the virtual side as well, I think we're going to see more on the uh, the augmented reality side. Uh, augmented right. realities, uh, you know, typically, you know, the glasses that kind of have the uh, the heads up displays or, you know, things are coming up on the screens in your, your glasses. Uh, TCL, the big uh, TV manufacturer, uh, they uh, announced three different uh, types of uh, glasses, uh, basically, that kind of take uh, AR to the next level. One uh, that actually, which was kind of cool, um, you know, you can see directions as you're going down the street, uh, and it actually works on both sides of the glasses. Typically, a lot of these glasses in the past only have uh, one of the lenses work uh, uh, to, to do this, but this has both lenses going. And also, there's like a translation feature, and this is kind of cool. So someone could be talking to you in another language, uh, let's say like Mandarin uh, or even French, and in your glasses, it'll actually transcribe that in real time, kind of like you're watching a, a show with subtitles. It'll actually show you the, uh, uh, the translation in English right on uh, the, the glasses uh, uh, in the lens there, so you can actually follow along, which I thought was just kind of amazing technology. That is that is that is kind of mind blowing. It's a long way from the Google Glass, right? Like it's uh, it's uh, that's oh uh, Google Glass, I, I, yeah. That was like the the Stone Age compared to some of this stuff uh, that's coming up. But is. you know what? It, it's cool. It's cool, but it's just it's not quite there yet for mass adoption. Right. Like uh, I can see like the nerds really kind of uh, geeking out on this, but I think for normal people, I think we're still a few years away. But it's kind of fun to to see how far they've advanced with it. For, for the normal folks, is there anything that you're seeing there that you think we'll all be seeing pretty soon? Anything that um, you mentioned before, sort of the, the robotic lawnmowers and so on, and those are out there and, and sort of the, the, a lot of the health tech, it feels like it's coming our way quite quickly. Uh, but what are you seeing there that you think we'll be seeing in the very near future, something that we should really be looking out for? I mean, there's so many different things. Uh, you know, tell you know a big part of this show is uh, like the monitors and the and the television uh, side. You know, the Samsungs, the LGs, and TCLs are just you know trying to find ways for us to upgrade to the latest TV uh, technology. So uh, you know, making obviously the screens uh, brighter, also uh, smarter uh, as well. Uh, there's this one interesting company called Displace TV, and this was kind of cool. They uh, have these large screen TVs. Uh, let's say, uh, you know, 50, 55 inches that weigh less than 20 pounds and you can actually hang them anywhere. They've actually wow. got uh, four built-in batteries uh, that will make the TV last all day. So there's like no cables. It's like a wireless TV. You could hang it on a window. You can hang it on the wall. It's got the special suction cups on the back of the TV that basically can kind of adhere to uh, anything. So for those people that hate wires, uh, this might be uh, something that you'd uh, want to have a look at. No word on price yet. I'm sure it's not cheap, but uh, kind of cool. Uh, TC also showed off a 98-inch TV, which just kind of blows my mind. I don't know how you get that size of TV into, like, a condo. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, how's that no, going to well, exactly. get in the elevator, yeah, right? Yeah, on the balcony. I'd have to lift, hoist it up. Yeah. But, you know, they're competing against these, uh, these short-throw projectors now. 
you know, typically when you think of projector, you're going to need like, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet, uh, you know, to project the image on a screen or a wall. These short uh, show projectors have made a big impact in the market because they only have to be like, you know, inches away from the screen or, or the wall. It just kind of projects uh, the image uh, straight up. So they've got like new 4K and 8K versions. But uh, like I said, TCL and some of these other companies now are coming out with these big 98-inch screen TVs to kind of compete against uh, that. Again, not cheap, but, um, you know, they're out in the marketplace. Yeah, you'll never have to leave the house again. Uh, I also saw these pretty amazing-looking sort of um, curved uh, gaming monitors where you can really sort of get a much more immersive experience as well. I don't know who makes those. I just was watching videos earlier. Oh, gaming gaming is huge now. Like, it's a multi-billion-dollar business. And, you know, when you think of video gamers or PC gamers, everyone thinks kids. No, it's, you know, the, the average age is in the late 30s now. So it's all the guys and gals that have, disposable income that can afford these expensive monitors like samsung was showing off i think it's like a 59 inch curved gaming monitor like right it that's will the one blow here. your mind yeah i think lg's got one that can curve and uncurve depending you know what kind of mood you're in as well which is kind of uh, kind of a, a neat thing uh but yeah there's tons of different gaming uh, tech uh, happening uh, down here all sorts of different types of PC cases and uh, Intel just, you know, announced their latest generation, uh, you know, core, uh, 13 core or 13th generation um, processors uh, as well. So it's just uh, getting faster and faster. Well, Mike, it sounds like you're going to have a great time this week. Uh, you'll have to keep us posted um, and we'll hear about it, of course, when, when you report on it. Thanks so much. Enjoy Las Vegas. It sounds like it's going to be a fun, fun, uh, fun week. I know it goes till Sunday. I'll be dead by then. <laughs> but it's going to be a well, happy thanks. dead. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing so much information about it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm still impressed by my iPhone 13. So, you know, that's where I'm at. I'm gonna oh, I'm no, you're, you're, you're doing good. You're doing good. <laughs> Mike Garbo, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you.